I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Daily Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting live from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Musqueam territory, colonially known as Vancouver. I am your host, Sarah Unju, and I have a, a guest with me live in studio. I'm so excited. I have Sophie with me here. Hi. Hello, Sophie. How are you Hi, doing? Tamse. I'm very, very well, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Um, before we started the show, Sophie and I had been chatting a little, and I'm really excited to talk more um, about the the residency, the recentering margins residency, and about the showing that's going to happen on April 20th. But before we do that, I will um, mention that starting... This week, next week, our show is going bi-weekly instead of our usual weekly schedule. So next week, we're not going to have a show, but you can still tune in to listen to this episode. It will be rebroadcasted in case you don't have time to listen to the whole thing or in case you want to listen to my interview with Sophie again. (laughs) And so April 26th, April 27th is our next show and May 11th, you know, May 25th and so on. And yeah, I'm I'm really excited because us having bi-weekly shows means summer's coming. <laughs> and summer coming means Vancouver's gonna be really pretty. <laughs> and I'm very excited. But yes, okay, so we can start. Sophie, um, thank you for coming in the studio today. So for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us what a residency is and what you do as an artist during a residency? Yeah, absolutely. So residencies are vast. There's kind of a vast category of residencies, but essentially it's an allocated time for artists to either come together or work on their owns and just focus in on a project or a question or the creation of something. You can go anywhere from a week long to month long to a year long. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially it's just this, this kind of streamlined time that we can forget about the rest of the world and just work on something. Some residencies are project-based, so you emerge with something or um, a presentation or there's a culminating showing. Other residencies are just research-based where essentially you have allocated time to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just this, it's kind of the artist's dream time. <laughs> artists like, um, once you get on the residency wave, it's kind of hard to get off. <laughs> So there's something sought after by artists. I would say so. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty, the last five or six years, I've mostly just been, most of my work has been in residencies. Oh, wow. Okay. And how long is the the recentering margins residency? Yeah. So this one is eight months or so. We started in, let's see, 
we found out or we accepted into it, I want to say at the end of August Mm -hmm. and we started, we got most of our details by September. Um, I didn't actually start in studio until about October, November, but. Oh, um, okay. That's a long, that's longer than I expected. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking it was maybe like two months. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This one's really unique in terms of it was a lot of, there's a lot of freedom. Essentially Mm -hmm. we were given a hundred free studio hours. Um, so we could book studio time. I mean, you have to work around a few calendars, of course, but um, we could book at our leisure. And then there's uh, an allocated amount of time, about 15 to 20 hours with a mentor of our choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the opportunity to connect with a writer, too, who's going to write a companion piece to go with our creation. Yeah, this is a perfect segue into my next question. <laughs> so in this residency, every artist is accompanied by an emerging mm-hmm. writer to document your um, your process, basically, and yours is Grant Morin. Yeah. Robin, yeah. Robin Grant Morin. Ro- okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is all of the information I grabbed from online, so yes. anything I say is not because of me. <laughs> no, no, totally. <laughs> so um, the pair, these pairs, are you two paired up? Um, how do I put this? Did you choose uh, your writer or were you paired up and then you get to work with them? Yeah, I, I we got to choose our own writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could choose an emerging writer or a professional writer. So I really wanted to stick within um, the, a lot of my work touches on contemporary indigenous worldviews and so on. And mm-hmm. so I really wanted to stay in um, the realm of that I guess so my I actually talked to my mentor Cole Alvis and she recommended Robin to me Mm -hmm. um and Robin is this absolutely fabulous Métis writer based in Toronto um who reviews she reviews a lot of um dance theater and opera um she works for the Canadian Opera Company she works for the Toronto Star she was an incredible arts critic Mm -hmm. Um, how do you think Working with Robin, Robin slash this aspect of the residency enhances your experience in oh. the residency. Oh my gosh, it's been absolutely fabulous. I've been trying to add text to my piece, mm-hmm. just my own kind of theater script um, to my piece for since I've started it. This is kind of a, the third residency I've put this piece through, and mm-hmm. there's more on the down the road. Um, but to have Robin's perspective and the writing that she's doing to accompany it is um it's been really profound in that she's introducing another like just another perspective right mm-hmm. it's more information and more um insight that I wouldn't necessarily have had without it mm-hmm. and it's kind of a neat um collaboration in that we've both agreed that we don't want it to be an academic writing piece it's yeah. very it's a very creative piece it's out there it's <laughs> gonna even be in probably a circular shape in terms of how you visually experience it so yeah and do you think because you mentioned that you've been wanting to incorporate um, written pieces into your work, uh, do you think this um, the like having a writer within the residency for the dancers for someone who has never thought about this? Um, do you think it would be uh, like a good experience? Slash, would you like recommend this to artists who are thinking of applying for the residency next year? Absolutely, yeah. Um... Outside, I mean, in my other practices and other pieces that I've created, I do a lot of writing in mm-hmm. general. Um, a lot of my choreographies and other, even just process if I'm in somebody else's piece, like I do allocate about an hour of writing to go with each rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so to have somebody who's not necessarily dancing in the piece, but coming in and somebody who's not coming in to critique your piece, but just to support you fully in this other art form, it's Mm -hmm. always, I always recommend any kind of sense of collaboration. Absolutely. Um, It's definitely a highlight feature of this, of this residency particularly. So Robin's writing is to accompany your work. Um, how has the process with working with Robin been? Like in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, does she have like does she share her ideas with you slash her writing, and then you two figure something out together, or is it kind of working together but also separate at the same time? Uh, a mix of both, I'd mm-hmm. say. Um, so we've really just had a few Zoom meetings, and the first one, <laughs> they, they're supposed to be an hour. They end up being three or four hours. <laughs> Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so the first one just was mostly um, us getting to know each. I didn't really know her other than her her professional work and mm-hmm. my professional work. We hadn't met in person at that point. Um, so just getting to know each other, and then I'd sent her the video of what I had of my piece so far and the different iterations that it's been through so far, mm-hmm. and kind of where I was going and some thoughts and ideas, and as well as notes that I had from my mentorship mm-hmm. meetings. Um, and then we just kind of bounced ideas off of each other about okay. we kind of immediately came to, okay, this is not an mm-hmm. academic paper. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of got into the, um, I guess, to do it in a less colonial way. I don't, I'm hesitant to say indigenizing it, but mm-hmm. a slightly less colonial way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then, yeah, and then after that, she just kind of sent a couple of ideas and then I was like, oh yeah, that's all great. And then she just sent questions back and forth and just kind of played off of it from there she sent me a couple samples and I said they're great and yeah <laughs> she kept going <laughs> wonderful yeah <laughs> and so as well as having a writer work with you you mentioned that you each artist also gets a mentor yeah um so and your mentor is Cole Alvis yes Cole Alvis and Olivia C. Davies but Cole yeah. Alvis more hands-on in this mm-hmm in this context okay so how does a mentor mentee relationship work in a in a residency slash for dancers is. <laughs> i have this uh a lot of the dancers that i work with all know i have this whole rant that there should be an entire university course just based on mentorship because <laughs> when you write right after you get out of art school it's yeah. like there's all these opportunities to have mentorship and you get mm-hmm. into one you're like uh, <laughs> i don't know what to do <laughs> um but um, in this in this setting, it's been um, it's been so lovely. I meet with Cole probably once a month or so, and we just have a phone call, and mm-hmm. I'll send her what I have created so far, um, and then she'll come with a list of questions, and mm-hmm. usually they're really challenging questions. <laughs> It's like, oh, man, I I thought I had this character figured out. And then next thing you know, oh, I have no idea who I'm playing. I have no idea what this story is. Um, Tearing it all apart, but rebuilding in the most beautiful and powerful ways. Yeah. Um, But I guess the biggest, it was probably in 2019. I did this really neat week-long residency with Mm -hmm. um, Keija to Dance in Toronto. And... Essentially, it was with Karen Kaja, and I had two dancers with me, and I was choreographing, and I'd be going along, and we were creating this seven-minute piece, um, and I'd get stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally, if that happened in the studio, we'd either like take a break, or like if I was by myself or whatever, yeah. we'd ask the dancers, or 
whatever. But I was able to just turn around to Karen and say, I'm stuck. And she mm-hmm. would just swoop in very gracefully <gasps> and just take over. And she'd do exactly that. She'd shift the perspective slightly. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really, I think, had a clear understanding of what mentorship could be, especially in a dance and choreographic context. Yeah. And so to understand that that's a fruitful experience for me and understand that's kind of the support that I appreciate from mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been translating that into all the other mentorships I've been working with, especially this one with Cole. And it's, yeah. it's very fluid. It's very um, beneficial. Whereas yeah. some mentorships are like painstakingly, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know what to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it's been working out. And you said that you're, you have, so you have two mentors, Olivia and Cole yes. and Cole is more hands-on. Yes. Um, so, how is it with Olivia? Yeah, uh, with Olivia. So I actually, um, I'm the artistic associate of her company as of mm-hmm. last week. Um, <laughs> and so she was the original, um, I guess she took on the project first. So mm-hmm. this is a project I've been working on on and off since 2017. Um, and I reapplied it. I kind of put it to sleep after 2017. And then I was talking with an elder in 2019. And then started applying it to things, and in 2021, Mm -hmm. um, Odela Arts picked it up, Mm -hmm. um, which is her company, and she funded Slight, a little bit of research. Um, And so her mentorship is actually quite similar, now that I think about it, in terms of um, I'd share what I was working on Mm -hmm. or discuss a couple things, and then she'd kind of come back to me with some feedback Mm -hmm. and some questions. There was a couple times she actually zoomed into the studio, though, while I was working, which is kind of neat as an active witness. Um, And same kind of thing, just shared observations, shared questions, shared things that weren't sitting with her Mm -hmm. comfortably. Or if she'd have a dream that, like, it's like, Sophie can't stomp on the flag. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was already on film, though. (laughs) And just, like, really great conversations in that. So I guess, yeah, very conversational, but very supportive in terms of content, in terms of dance, especially because Cole is very much, um, her background is in theater, um, Mm -hmm. whereas Olivia's is full-time dance. Yeah. um, But both from the Indigenous perspective for the most part, so... That's so interesting that you have a mentor who has a background in theater, though. Oh, yeah, okay. because you wouldn't guess that for a residency for dance. <laughs> yeah, I right? guess not. I mean, I guess Cole is connected to the dance communities and that she's the she's on the board of directors for um, Dancers of Damala Hamid oh, um, and okay. Coastal Dance Fest. Yeah. Um, and I know quite a few of the people that Cole works with are dancers mm-hmm. as well. Um or dabble in the dance world, but mm-hmm. I've also kind of been a, a dabbler. I mean, although a lot of my work is presented in the dance context, mm-hmm. um, I've spent a lot of time in the theater world, and I used to live with a bunch of theater students when I was in <laughs> Toronto back in the in the day. Yeah. Um, and so I always have kind of hopped into both, and I've looked at uh, theater grants and so on and mm-hmm. so forth and kind of tried to merge the two, so... It seemed like a clear choice when I uh, yeah when I chose cool <laughs> yeah so that brings me to my next question which is so the mentees choose their mentors mm-hmm. and what was the reason for going with Olivia and Cole yeah um, so for Olivia um, it was because well partially because she already knew about the project mm-hmm. um, and it should already be supported by the company um, but I met Olivia actually at York University she came and taught a workshop in twenty. 16 2017 maybe mm-hmm. um I was injured that week and like I remember hiding in the back and like not I was like 
<laughs> not there. And then a year and a half later, out of the blue, I had this email in my inbox from her. Like, hey, Sophie, like, are you done university? Are you dancing and living your dream in Toronto? And I was like, actually, oh my, my university just went on strike and I'm about <laughs> to go on tour for six months and I'll be in BC. Should yeah. we have coffee? Um, and so we had coffee in 2018. I, well, I was in Vancouver on yeah. tour. And then, um, and then, yeah, it was just kind of this like serendipitous paths crossing and I've always just been so moved by her work Mm -hmm. I've seen it presented a number of times I used to work at Native Earth Performing Arts in Toronto Mm -hmm. so I've seen it there I saw it while I was traveling in BC the follow into like 2019 I was here on tour and she happened the one the day I landed at the airport she happened to have a rehearsal she was putting on this piece in the uh, Mountain View Cemetery um and she's like, I have a rehearsal. Come see my rehearsal. It's like 20 dancers in these long black dresses. It was beautiful. I was like, oh, this oh my is God. perfect. I was leaving the next day to the yeah. night to go to Nelson. Um, so it's been this kind of funny path crossing. But I was definitely, I'm very, very, very moved by her work. So that was a clear choice. In yeah. Terms of that. And then for Cole, I actually met Cole in a hand drum circle. Uh, my friend used to run um, hand drum circles in Toronto on Monday nights. Mm-hmm. And Cole came didn't come very often, but uh, enough times that we'd, we'd met and we knew each other. And Cole also had gone to York, but like in 2006, 2007. So I remember seeing Cole's name around the university here and there, like set designs and directing and some playwriting stuff. Because um, I was a pseudo theater student mm-hmm. <laughs> at York. Um, um, and I'd seen some of Cole's work in Toronto a little bit. Um, yeah. But other, th- other than the hand drum circle, we hadn't really spent much time connecting and then mm-hmm. yeah and then I just on a whim suggested uh um Cole on a list of mentors I was doing a residency with Raven Spirit Dance mm-hmm. and they said okay give us your a list of 10 options for mentors okay so I gave them this list of 10 and Cole was somewhere in the middle there <laughs> and they pointed out Cole and I was like nice. okay cool <laughs> um so Cole came on board for this project and then yeah. this project just translated back into I replied this project to Recentering Margins after it had been developed with Raven Spirit at that point. Okay. So I already had Cole, and then I had Olivia from Odela, and it just blossomed yeah. perfectly. Oh, that sounds perfect. I also, especially the fact that, like, your paths with Olivia has been, like, crossing, and then you now get to have Olivia as a mentor. That's so nice. So as a now mentee um would you want to do a mentorship in the future for uh up-and-coming dancers not necessarily for this residency specifically but for in general yeah absolutely um i mean i always feel like a baby i'm like i still need 25 (laughs) more years of sitting with elders before i can uh teach anybody anything or share anything with anyone but in terms of even just um when I was at York, I was on the Dance Student Association as the vice mm-hmm. president for a bit or co-president for a bit. Um, and we did a, a micro um, micro mentorship mm-hmm. program, which was really neat and really inspiring. Like even just that peer-to-peer support yeah. is really powerful. And I'm definitely kind of seeing and understanding how how moving that is and how much how supportive that is so like if it if the opportunity comes up absolutely like yeah i'd, I'd love to offer it. that yeah so if any dancers are listening maybe in the future you'll have sophie as your mentor <laughs> wouldn't that be exciting imagine them being like hey i listened to your interview <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> you're like mm, okay maybe not <laughs> 
Yeah, well, even though I'm really enjoying our conversation, we do need to take a quick ad and PSA break. Um, but as always, our breaks are really fast. So we're going to be back very soon. And afterwards, we'll talk a little bit more about Sophie's dancing in general, dance, their background, and everything related, everything that's left about the residency. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be right back. This Quarter Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theater, Discorder lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna do it. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna, wait, I'm gonna do it wrong. I'm about to spit yeah, in this mic like <laughs> freestyle elfin, you know? Okay, okay. <clears throat> wait, hold on. Does this make sense? <laughs> <laughs> no, but who cares? All right, let's go. <clears throat> Finally, we. <laughs> You're not even gonna last. All right. Victoria's pretty good, not bad festival, fountain, just back from France. Montreal? <laughs> what the f? It's the script! <laughs> I couldn't even. What? Victoria's pretty good, not bad festival. <laughs> Fountain okay, just what? back from France. <laughs> what are you even saying here? Oh, you're trying to say these are the things featured yeah, 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 yeah. in this one. You should probably specify that. Because even a fucking elf couldn't understand that, okay? Think you can do better than an elf? At CITR, we want to have a variety of voices on the air. Want to write scripts? Do some voice acting? Broadcast your creativity? Volunteer with the CITR production department. No experience? We can also train you in everything required. Send an email to psas at citr.ca to learn more. And don't wait to get your voice on the air. <laughs> Welcome back. Hello. I hope you enjoyed that PSA. We certainly did. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're back. If you're just tuning in now, hello. This is the Art Support with me, Sairaunja, as your host. And I also have Sophie with me in studio, who is a dancer. And we're talking about um, the recentering Margins residency. So we've talked about the residency in general about your mentorship, you working with a writer. Um, but now I kind of want to talk about you as a dancer and your process as a dancer, choreographer. And, you know, every artist has different processes. So for you, when you're working on a project, um, what is your process like for creating something, you know, taking it from nothing to a finished uh, finished to ready to present project <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <laughs> um I mean every project's really quite different um I do a lot of work with um with not elders and knowledge keepers and I mean no project really has there's some projects that have specific seeds um it usually comes from a dream or from a a book or something I've read or a song or a phrase that comes to mind mm -hmm. um and then yeah I guess it really it really varies for each each project sometimes I start with the movement sometimes I start with the music mm -hmm. 
Sometimes I start with a uh, walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Before we started the show, we were talking uh, a little bit because we had time. <laughs> and you mentioned that you also dabble in music. And um, so when you do, you know, when you're working on music, uh, do you ever have... Is, is it do you okay i'll start with this question <laughs> do you work on music solely for your dance or is it like separate and then sometimes you'll use them for your dance too yeah um before it was really separate mm -hmm. i had these three lives i guess right mm -hmm. my professional dance life my professional music life and um and my rent my the jobs that pay my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the jobs that used to pay my rent but are now very anyways so there's three direct streams and i spent a lot of time mulling about just being like okay like how do i tie and braid these streams together mm -hmm. um and then one day it just kind of i don't even know what day it happened it was probably somewhere around like 2017 2018 all of a sudden the music and dance just started started making sense together mm -hmm. um I mean, I'm part of a, I've got a band based out of Toronto or called the Honeycomb Flyers, and it's very much Ooh. music I would not put in my dance pieces. <laughs> like 1920s jazz and early 20th century blues and uh, and so on. But uh, when it comes to dance and music, um, I play quite a few instruments. Um, mm -hmm. I started playing piano when I was about three years old and did some of my exams, my Royal Conservatory music exams, and then picked up the flute when I was 11 and alto and Barry sax when I was 12 and 14 tenor sax uh, I bought it I saved wow. my allowance and bought a guitar when I was 12 it's still the same guitar I have today Damn. and just kind of learned by sitting down beside people at music festivals mm -hmm. um and I've always played lots and lots of percussion instruments from I had a really solid music program in elementary school um and so I guess I started um recording some of those sounds and bringing them into the studio or um, just kind of playing. Or sometimes I'd be creating in silence when I do a lot of choreography um, without music at all. Yeah. Um, and would start hearing sounds and start drawing them in. And so it kind of mm -hmm. became this collaborative, collaborative process between <laughs> my body and my ears and what I was hearing and what I was feeling. Um, That's such a, yeah. like a, I feel like a beautiful way to expressed like a collaboration between your body and your ears yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you ever like create something like in music and you're like wait this would like this would be the perfect song for my you know like my this new project yes you know? yeah. yeah oh yeah often actually <laughs> um yeah more often than not actually i would say yeah. Um, I just finished working on a side project with a company called Shooting Gallery Performance, also based in Vancouver. And mm -hmm. I'd actually forced myself to do that. I said I had to um, create one where I wrote the song and then choreographed the dance, then one mm. where I created the dance and then wrote the song, and then okay. one where I made the film and then made the music and then the dance. And it was like a, this kind of game of telephone with myself. Yeah. How do you think what are the differences like when you do the music first and then the dance versus the dance first and then the music Ooh, um differences i guess 
That's a really hard question. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say one is, no, it's great. I love it. Um, I want to say one is more physical than the other, but I think they're both pretty, everything is pretty unique in terms Mm -hmm. of like physicality, in terms of the style of the music. I'd say generally the music that I write, if I don't have an idea for dance, is Mm -hmm. a lot more folky. Okay. Um, There are a lot of songs I have written that are very much like something I'd sit down and play at a folk festival Mm. rather than actually dance to. And I'm more, um, like last year during the pandemic, I did this uh, song every week challenge where you're given a prompt and you have to write a song by the night, by the following Tuesday and then submit it. Oh my God. So on and so forth. So I ended up writing 25 songs last year and not, maybe I would dance to one of them, but the rest of them were like pretty much like guitar, washboard or drum. So I'd say like, the music that I write is more in the older eras in terms of that. Whereas if I'm actively composing a song for dance, it's probably going to be more instrumental, more rhythmic, or more um, sometimes more abstract, but like a lot less words and a lot more instrumentation. Yeah. Okay. I had a question in my. Oh yes. Okay. I remember. I was just about to say that I forgot it because I was. <laughs> like so focused on listening to you. <laughs> so for example think of like the same choreography say you have a piece um how do you think the music would be different if you did the music first versus the dance first like mm-hmm. it's the same choreography right yeah. some might think that it would convey the same emotions or the same message uh do you think there would be a difference with the music that is accompanying it yeah that's actually one of my favorite games and actually parasol the piece i'm working on with this uh residency um is there's it started off like that right take a song that's by an artist Mm -hmm. um this is actually a rule that a rule that happened at york university is that if you're choreographing a piece for um any of their shows it couldn't have lyrics because like modern dance there's this weird like rule in modern dance I mean, it's yeah. changing now but like there's been this weird rule of modern dance the last like 40 years you can't use yeah. songs with words it's just not a thing um and so i choreographed the original parasol to a song with words mm-hmm. um and then one day i just took that song off and put on another song okay. that was some in a similar vein i guess and mm-hmm. you could argue that it was like of the same kind of style um, and the piece actually ended up clicking in and fitting better Ooh. with that. So a lot of times in most of my processes, just to kind of play with it, mm-hmm. I will um, dance to one song mm-hmm. and then do a completely different song or like I'll choreograph mm-hmm. very specifically to a set of words yeah. um, or to a lyric or a verse or a whatever um, by some famous artist. And then I will compose my whole own thing that has nothing to do with the original song. Yeah. So then you have all these, like, funny hand movements, like you're putting on glasses, and then you're making a box, and then you're, I don't know, throwing yourself to the ground, and it goes exactly with the words that's describing that, but then you put that with other music, and it tells a whole different story. It takes a whole new meaning. Yeah, you're so right. Wow. And so talking about the piece that you will be presenting on April 20th, um, can you tell us a little bit about it, what it's like? Like, I know it's pretty difficult to describe dance with words, but (laughs) (laughs) please try. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're actually at the showing, we're going to be showing a film because I was supposed to be on tour next week. Mm, Um, Plans change, but the way the theater works out, so I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Um, 
but we'll be showing a filmed version of this piece. So it's called Parasol. Mm -hmm. um, the part that I'm showing is called Parasol Chapter X because there are going to be two parts. Um, okay. It's about 20 minutes right now, and it's aiming to be about a 35 to 40 minute show or 35 minute for tours and then um eventually it'll be a full for 55 60 minute show mm -hmm. um and i guess it originally started as a piece for four drag queens oh. um so four dancers and full like wild over-the-top red outfits um not particularly gender specific it was very much a intentionally gender bending kind of piece mm -hmm. and there was a pair of red high heels in the center of the stage and a spotlight mm. and essentially they played this game the whole time where in order uh the shoes were symbolic of ultimate power whatever that meant um but in order to be the owner of the shoes you had to be carrying this scraggly red parasol essentially <laughs> this like umbrella that i ripped all the fabric off and like put like feathers down one arm yeah. and a bunch of like dirty lace down the other arm and like a fishnet off of another arm and like um and but the parasol drives you into madness oh wow so essentially you have to go on this giant journey that drives you into madness to gain ultimate power mm -hmm. um so it's this fun little thing i had three male or two male identifying dancers uh one non-binary dancer and one female dancer mm -hmm. um fighting over these red high heels on stage <laughs> awesome yeah. epic adventure so that, that was so fun 2017 <laughs> yeah and then i was always like okay i have to do something with this like i've choreographed a lot of pieces but like this is probably one of the high the best things mm -hmm. i've ever done so far and so i was I put it to rest. I was doing a bunch of other stuff. I did a bunch of tours and such. And then I uh, was sitting with an elder one day, and I, I came up in conversation. I described exactly what I just shared, sort of. Maybe I might have shown them. I'm not sure. Um, and they said, well, that's pretty similar to the Red Dress Project, which is, um, for anybody that doesn't know, it's a... Uh, um, about missing and murdered Indigenous women, oh, um, yeah. mm -hmm. queer folks and two-spirit folks um, and children. Um, and it's a... Uh, I guess it's an initiative to, to recognize and bring awareness, um, and it's represented by red dresses. So there's many art installations around around Turtle Island that, mm -hmm. that share that. It's like, okay, it is. Um, what do I do with this information? <laughs> yeah. um, and they're like, I think this is a solo. Uh, the elders said this. Okay. Um, it's like, okay, how do I, as this person in this body, make us turn this piece for drag queens into a solo about the red dress, or that yeah. acknowledges the red dress project respectfully um, and with honor? Um, and so I spent a year or two just ruminating and trying to figure out what the heck to do. Um, and this elder also has very um, focused on the phrase of, like, if you vision something or if you create that vision or if you receive that vision, mm -hmm. if you're gifted that, it's your responsibility in this world to mm -hmm. create that and bring it to life because nobody else is going to be able to see it. So it's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that triple the responsibility to, uh, to make a piece. Um, so that's where it started. And now, I guess, to describe what it is now, it's um, as a central character, I call him character Q, um, played by myself, um, and they've just, um, they've just died. They've gone through a whole bunch of lifetimes, um, mm -hmm. that are described in kind of the opening sequence and they're kind of in this in-between space. And then they're 
booted. There's actually a sound of like a <laughs> I actually get kicked um, into this um, purgatory setting. I'm, I'm using the word purgatory very lightly. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you can use that word lightly, um, I mean- <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm a little bit skeptical of its context um, from a biblical sense of things, mm-hmm. um, but. For lack of a better term, it goes into purgatory, essentially. And this character has to reconcile all the past lives they've just lived um, in order to essentially die and oh, and wow. move on from this world. Um, it's a yeah. very interesting concept. Yeah. And, and it's a little sneaky, though, in terms of, yeah. um, although it's this character's personal experiences, mm-hmm. it's also reflective of a lot of the politics and a lot of the traumas that have been happening on this land for mm-hmm. for many years. So it's kind of a double story by telling by telling the individual story it's also commenting on the collective story of mm-hmm. Turtle Island. Oh wow. Well, it sounds like a pretty great um concept and I'm sure it's going to be amazing to, you know, watch this and experience this as a viewer. Um so the showing will be on April 20th, and it's at SFU Woodwards, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and I believe it's a free event? I think so. That's a great question. I can double-check <laughs> right now. I should know, too. <laughs> no, it's fine. But, yeah, so uh, we have, like, a couple more minutes uh, before we go into our next Adam PSA break. Is there anything that you want to mention or talk about before we go? Oh, um, another good question. <laughs> um, just that I'm, I'm excited to share this iteration. It's, uh, it's definitely evolved since the the filming of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a, it's in a continuing phase. It's actually it's Raven Spirit's going to continue with it until June, and then um, it's going to go into another residency <laughs> at the end of mm. at the end of the summer. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm really excited to. Uh, share it with more eyes. Yeah, <laughs> must hurts. be nerve wracking, but also really good at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, I have some information here. <laughs> April twentieth, twenty twenty two, at seven thirty p.m. SFU Woodwards. It's for, it's a free event, but ten dollars donations are welcome. And you can go to des- dancewest.net for more informations. You can also find informations on the other artists as well as Sophie, and. Yeah, um, something that I want to mention that is unfortunately not related to Sophia <laughs> uh, before we go into our break is we're going to um, play like one or two songs from a local artist called Turnesh. And I'm going to be back with some more information on what's happening in Vancouver. But yeah, um, thank you so much for, for coming into the station today and talking with me both about the residency and all you as a dancer it was really insightful and very fun to talk to you <laughs> oh thank you so much for having me this has been lovely yeah i'm glad that it was good for you too <laughs> but yeah so we'll be back after well the ads and psa and the songs enjoy you're listening to citr 101.9 broadcasting from ubc's point gray campus located on the traditional unceded Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminum speaking Musqueam people. 
Nisiyem, nisiyaya Thikum kuinensem Haidj gasiyem, nisiyem, nisiyaya Anthas gachliya Talitin, humas kuimasteoch The AIDS Vancouver Helpline is here to help. Open from 9 to 4, Monday to Friday, the Helpline answers questions about HIV and safer sex. Call to find medical support in your area without giving your name. Run by volunteers, the Helpline is one of the many programs from AIDS Vancouver combating the HIV epidemic in the Lower Mainland. While not medical professionals, our volunteers answer your questions confidentially and anonymously. The Helpline number is 604 696 or contact us at aidsvancouver.org.
Listening to the art support on CHA 101.9 FM. I just finished a 40 minute long interview with Sophie Dow, which this was my longest interview ever. And it was more like a, a conversation rather than an interview, which I very much enjoyed. It was amazing. Check out um, Parasol on April 20th. And with that, also, the song you just listened to was <laughs> it was Spring, Space Spirit by Turanesh and Tim Lyre. And now I'm gonna mention quickly some things that are happening and after that we'll be done with the show. So first up, Theater Conspiracy is coming to you with Same Difference and Himmat. So Same Difference is an immersive audiovisual experience inviting audiences to stargaze upon themselves and their images within an evolving and seemingly boundless space. The installation contemplates themes of belonging, self-alienation, and identity formation. It is the piece is informed by 12 interviews conducted with immigrants and refugees of diverse geopolitical and age groups, and the interviews are an ever-present pulse underscoring the architectural transformations. A follow-up on Theatre Conspiracy's Foreign Radical, Same Difference continues the company's dedication to probing documentary form in performance. And um, Same Difference design language is an evolution of the design concepts first explored by David Messiha and Parjat Sharifi in Leaky Heaven's 2011 production of Project Faust. And the events are April 19th to April 20th. So... April 19th, um, 7 to 8 p.m. and 8.30 to 9 p.m. This is the times for 19th, 20th, and 21st, and 22nd. And then on April 23rd, it is 2 to 3 p.m. and 7 to 8 p.m. The location is Shetbolt Center for the Arts. And you can find more information if you go to... Um, Theater Conspiracy's website, or if you search up Same Difference Theater Conspiracy, you'll get all the information. The second one is Himmat. 
uh, again, theater conspiracy, but it is being presented within the cult. It is written by Gavin Chema and directed by Panit Singh, and it is the world premiere of Himmat, so a narrative in Punjabi and English. Himmat delves into the world of a father and daughter born generations and miles apart. It is a gut-wrenchingly honest depiction of a working-class family's struggle with addiction and labor. Told through flashbacks and set in Surrey Memorial Hospital, Himmat takes audiences on a journey exploring the complexities of family history and immigration. As secrets are revealed, Bant and Ajit unpack their memories, discovering how family dynamics and relationships change over time. You can see Himmat from... May 6th to May 15th at the Historic Theater. And you can get tickets at thecult.com. The cult is C-U-L-T-C-H. And again, if you search up theater conspiracy, Himmat, that is H-I-M-M-A-T, I'm sure you'll find all of the information that you need. So moving away from theater conspiracy and coming to the Improv Center. So on April 14th, which is tomorrow at 9 p.m., the Improv Center is having drag at the Improv, featuring Vancouver's premier drag talent together in one place this will be a night you won't want to miss it is being hosted by vancouver's drag mogul vintage pinup bottle and community leader and they have a specifically created crafted show for you to face your eyes on again it's tomorrow at 9 p.m but also it is 18 plus minors can attend with an adult uh so check that out if you search up the improv center drag at the improv i'm sure you'll get all of the information and lastly i want to tell you about the this eight-part podcast series called survivors so cjsw 90.9 fm has recently launched launched survivors it is as I said, an eight-part podcast series about the history and lasting impacts of residential schools in Canada. Survivors features testimonies from people who attended residential schools in the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta and interviews with academics and community leaders, including the Honorable Senator Murray Sinclair. And you can find links to each of the episodes and more information about the project on CJSW's website. If you go to cjsw.com forward slash program forward slash survivors, (laughs) you'll get all of the information you need. And check it out. Again, that is survivors that is um, being launched by CJSW. 90.9 90.9 FM in partnership with the Government of Canada's Department of Canadian Heritage. And let's see. Okay. I, I realized I did this way faster than I was um, planning on doing. So let's mention something else. Corleone. Um, Corleone is having new events, new um, pr- presentation program performances. It's a P word. So if you don't know, Corleone is an all-men's choir, and they have two different shows coming up. So a sound like this, Corleone and the Leonids, at the St. Andrew's Wesley United Church on May 12th and May 13th at 7.30 p.m. And also Van Man Summit Concert, and it's happening at the Chan Center here at UBC on May 14th at 7.30 p.m., and if you search up Corleone, you'll have all of the information you need. Corleone is C H O R 
that's core and then leoni is l-e-o-n-i and last but not least vancouver opera is having opera classes for adults uh so you know going back to school couldn't get any better for music lovers you can deepen your knowledge of opera and it's uh, blended with poetry drama and music for it it's a five-part opera 101 online courses that are starting on may 3rd and in total for the five courses it is i believe a hundred dollars um, and they have more information on their website, which is vancouveropera.ca. If you go to learn, the first word that the first thing that comes up is Opera 101. And yeah, you can, if you've always been interested in opera, um, this is a great opportunity. I mean, at least that's what I think. But yeah, so thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode we're not going to be back with a new episode next week however we will be rebroadcasting this episode so you'll get to hear my 40 minute interview with sophie as well as you'll be reminded of what's happening within vancouver but we'll be right back um in on april 27th with some more new content for you and thank you all for listening this has been the arts report on CITR 101.9 fm and i hope you all have a lovely day goodbye
CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people at UBC. My name is Aliarada Mary, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Gurman Gill. Each week on Research Review, we interview a researcher who is affiliated with the UBC community and discuss some of their latest work and findings and how they relate to broader issues in society. Today, we would like to welcome Dr. Sean Lauer to Research Review on CITR 101.9 FM. Dr. Lauer is an associate professor in UBC's Department of Sociology and co-author of two books. The first one, Getting Married, The Public Nature of Our Private Relationships, and the second one, Neighborhood Houses, Community Building in Vancouver, which we will be starting off with today. So, Grimond, do you want to get us uh, start off with some questions, please? Yeah, totally. Um, first, could you maybe explain what got you interested in sociology? In sociology in general? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, for me, like, um, uh, like I, when I look at the social world, I've, oh, even before I knew what sociology was, I always sort of looked at it in terms of groups and connections. And I was always interested as a young person in like uh, subcultures and things like that. And so before I even really knew what sociology was, I was interested in those kinds of things. And so when I went to university and, and took my first sociology courses, I sort of realized like, okay, this is, this is the, my field kind of. And, uh, 
Um, well, maybe it's kind of interesting, but I was one of those students who didn't know what I wanted to study when I went to university. And it took me a couple of years to actually find sociology and to kind of realize that's what I was interested in. And, and um, but then, uh, you know, then I ended up getting three sociology degrees in a row. So I just kind of committed myself. Yeah, so I think it was always that kind of thing. Whenever I look at the world, I usually see it in terms of my first kind of question is like um, about social connections and like when people share ideas, one of the first things I think is I wonder where they got that idea. Where did they hear it from? Did they hear it from a person? Did, are they, is it from sort of like some kind of like uh, reading or shows they're watching or something like that? And and uh, but mostly I go back to these kind of social connections and, you know, sociology is kind of interesting because it also brings in these kind of structural elements of like sort of social structure and power and resources and things like that to those kinds of questions. And yeah, so those are the things that have always kind of driven me and um, hey, maybe like a short pithy kind of way to say it is like, I think sociology is interesting because it allows you like the world we all take for granted, but it kind of allows you to take a step back and like look at it a bit analytically and try and understand, uh, you know, why it is the way it is and why we do the things we do. Totally. Uh, so how did you get from there to an interest in the immigrant experience and learning about uh, neighborhood houses? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, hey, that's kind of a long story. I'll try and make it short, though. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd always been interested in things. Um, well, hey, the, the, the actual, the real story kind of is um, I was working, I was doing research on um, like economic sociology and economic kind of processes and things like that, that I was interested in. And uh, I had come to UBC and around that time, a colleague of mine here at UBC, um, uh, he uh, was looking for someone to do research around a similar kind of topic, around immigration and how people find work and those kinds of things. And so we started working together and I'd always been interested in immigration, but that, it was actually that connection that really got me interested in it as a field and making that kind of collaborative connection that I started to really kind of invest myself in thinking about immigration particularly. And um, the, that's all part of the story too, because it was actually the same guy, his name is um, Yu Chung Yan. He's a, he's a professor here at UBC as well. He introduced me to neighborhood houses and, and, uh, and that it was from there that I really got kind of interested and engaged with neighborhood houses in particular here in Vancouver. And, um, yeah, then that was, uh, I really kind of threw myself into it. And so I've really worked with neighborhood houses as an academic and a researcher, but also I've spent some of my time as a sort of person in the world volunteering and working with neighborhood houses as well as uh, doing all different kinds of projects. Uh, so maybe we should take a step back and explain to the audience what a neighborhood house actually is, <laughs> for those yeah, who don't so know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so neighborhood houses are actually community organizations and they're place-based community organizations. So they actually are located in specific neighborhoods. And so their mandate is to actually serve that particular neighborhood. And, and um, primarily their, their main interest is around community building. So kind of building connections within these kind of bounded, geographically bounded neighborhoods. And um, they do a lot of other things in addition to that too. Uh, they have an emphasis of uh, working with um, groups that are kind of marginalized and kind of an interest in working with marginalized groups. So uh, they work a lot with uh, newcomers to uh, to the neighborhoods. They look, work a lot with like say like mothers who need support in uh, raising children and and they do a lot of food and food security kind of programming. They do all kinds of things like that. So they, they kind of combine this sort of community building, community development kind of ethos along with this kind of interest in supporting marginalized people. Yep, that's yeah, kind of like a that, version. Yeah, how's that <laughs> different from a community center? Yeah, I think that's the, that's a big question that comes up a lot. And you know, the real difference between um, neighborhood houses and community centers, I'll say there's two things that are really distinguished them. One is um, 
the, this kind of community development ethos that's part of the neighborhood house movement, right? It's, it's really kind of has this ethos of trying to build community. Uh, a lot of the programming, like sometimes community centers will do a lot of similar kinds of programming as neighborhood houses, uh, recreational activities, support for parents and those kinds of things. But, but when the neighborhood house does it, it's always geared towards this idea of trying to build community and build and build connections in the community along with this idea of sort of like reaching out to marginalized groups. So you could kind of pop into a community center and participate in like a recreational activity or participate in some kind of activity. Uh, um, uh, some kind of program that's happening there. But at the neighborhood house, you kind of become a member and you sort of, you, you kind of join this group, this community, this group, and you become sort of a neighborhood house person a little bit in a way. And so that sense is a little different. Uh, I'll mention really quickly that the other thing that really distinguishes it is that neighborhood houses are part of like a long tradition. So they actually, the first neighborhood house sort of started in the 1800s, in the late 1900s, uh, it was a place called Toynbee Hall. And, um, it's kind of famous part of uh, neighborhood houses and, and settlement houses are kind of similar types of organizations. And the settlement house movement is a bit famous and it's been around for over hundred years now and, and it's made its way around the world. So there, there are places like neighborhood houses all over the world that sort of follow in this, this historical tradition as well. So that kind of makes it unique and different. So neighborhood houses, if I understand correctly, they're not a house where people go to live in, right? That's a really good point. Yeah, because sometimes people mm -hmm. are confused by that. Yeah, so it's actually not a place where you live. No, it's so the, sometimes people describe it as like the community's living room. That's kind of the mm -hmm. idea of the neighborhood house, but it's not a place where you'd actually live. Yeah, so um, you talked about how neighborhood houses are sometimes tailored towards a specific community it's located in. Uh, do you know any like specific examples on certain programs like one neighborhood house has um, that helps their particular community? Yeah, yeah. So like, um, so I wish I came with prepared with a list, but uh, <laughs> in fact, actually all neighborhood houses are really unique in that they do that. So usually it's, it's kind of demographically driven. Like, so, um, so for instance, in, um, in uh, the West End, there's a neighborhood house called the Gordon Neighborhood House. And the Gordon Neighborhood House, because of its location there, it has a lot of connections with the uh, LGBTQ community. And uh, they make connections also with like other uh, LGBTQ organizations in that area. And they have programs that kind of gear towards those types of that, that aspect of the neighborhood. And that would be really different than say, like um, there's a neighborhood house called the South Vancouver Neighborhood House out on Victoria. And, um, and it's, uh, it's geared much more towards its local community in that sense. So like, for instance, there's a Chinese uh, choir that, that goes there and practices and, and things to, at, at that location. So it's, it just kind of tailors itself to those different locations in that kind of way, I guess. Maybe that, maybe that captures it, I hope, anyway. Yeah. Uh, do they often, like, collaborate with other, like, um, organizations within the community, like clinics or places yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great thing. Uh, in fact, actually, um, uh, we've written about that a little bit in our book and in, in some other places too, about how, in a way, like because the neighborhood house is geographically based and some of those other organizations aren't geographically based, right? So the neighborhood house is sort of like a first door to a lot of those organizations. So people might first come to the neighborhood house and then people there who are working there will realize that they, um, this person has this X, Y, or Z kind of need. And so they'll connect them into this wider organizational network in that sense. So, and that way they become sort of like, um, what we kind of describe it as like a form of access, right? It's like they, people can kind of have access to this wider network by their connection through the neighborhood house. Yeah, I can imagine how that would be particularly helpful for a new immigrant in the country who has no idea where, 
start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they do yeah, lots of things like that. They'll be actually, they'll be sort of, um, say like employment, for instance, is one of the important things you'd be interested in, right? If you're a newcomer. And, and so, um, yeah, they have, they'll have made, sometimes they'll have like in, in programs at the neighborhood house, right? Where, um, where you'll be kind of, of connected with like learning how to like say resume building or those kinds of things or uh but then then the neighborhood house then will also have connections with other organizations to be able to sort of help them in that kind of job finding and job search process just as one example yeah uh do you know of like maybe some of the other like main um barriers immigrants come across that neighborhood houses try to help with well you know one thing i'm particularly interested in is um like uh, I, I have this interest in in uh, friendship and particularly in like how people make friends with people who are different than themselves in some kind of way. And so uh, that could be things like, uh, like so for a newcomer, you could be uh, making a connection with someone who's like, if you're an immigrant, maybe making someone who's not an immigrant, right? Like who's either, uh, maybe someone who's been in Canada for some time, that would be one kind of connection, but also a connection with maybe someone who's, uh, who was born in Canada, right? And then similarly, like you could also make connections with people from different um, ethnic backgrounds Backgrounds too, right? So you might meet other immigrants who are from different ethnic backgrounds, or you might meet other people who were born in Canada from different ethnic backgrounds. And, and I actually think that's kind of an important part of the kind of experience of being a newcomer to Canada is, I mean, partly that experience of being a newcomer is you find your people and you connect with your co-ethnic community and you kind of make your way and get support that way. But another way of trying of kind of belonging and finding your place in Canada is to sort of make those connections beyond that co-ethnic community and, and make and meet people outside of that kind of little that friendship group kind of say and um and that's that's actually one thing that the neighborhood house is really good for i think anyway and it's one thing i'm particularly interested in about them um yeah like they they bring together lots of different people because they don't have they're not an ethnic organization so they bring together all different kinds of people they attract people from different kind of ethnic backgrounds different immigrant status they also attract people with different sort of like educational and class kind of backgrounds and and so when you come into the neighborhood house you really sort of come into this sort of diverse area that has lots of different kinds of people that you can potentially, you know, make a either an acquaintance or maybe just kind of observe them from a distance or make an acquaintanceship and maybe even potentially become friends. Great. We'll be right back here on Research Review after one short message. So please stay tuned. Looking to get a reliable and affordable used bike? Need a repair or service to your current ride? Come to the Bike Kitchen, UBC's full-service community bike shop, located in room 36 of the UBC Life Building. Our hours are Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you buy a bike from us, bring it back when you're done using it, and we'll give you half of your money back as long as you took care of it. If it needs repairs, we'll split the cost with you. Yep, you heard us right. We'll give you crisp dollar bills for half the original price of any used bike that you buy from us, minus the cost of repairs. For more information about our buyback policy and to stay up to date on any COVID-19 inspired changes, find us online at thebikekitchen.com. You're listening to Research Review on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Alirod, and along with my co-host Gurman, in the past bit we've been interviewing Dr. Sean Lauer, an associate professor in UBC's Department of Sociology. And just in the past bit we've been talking a bit about neighborhood houses and Dr. Lauer's research on this topic, such as, you know, what exactly 
are these neighborhood houses and what advantages they have? So going ahead, uh, Gurman, I think you have some questions. Yeah, I, I noticed you also do some research in friendship and diversity in friendship groups. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would imagine community houses or neighborhood houses are amazing for that. Yeah, um, yeah. How does um, the diversity in friendship groups like change in between generations? Oh, oh that's uh, interesting. Like, um, like immigrant generations kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's interesting. Like, um, so I'm kind of kind of figuring this out a little bit now, even still as we talk, right? Because there is some, uh, there are is some big data. Like you can look at like big data sets in Canada too, right? To kind of get a sense of these things. And um, and you know, I also have like my focus on the neighborhood houses too, right? That I'm interested in. They're kind of in, in both of those kind of research areas. Or I'm interested in this idea of friendship and. But like with immigrant generations, you know, a lot of times um, neighborhood houses or other kinds of um, uh, interaction, other kinds of organizations even can kind of contribute to uh, developing different kind friendships with people that are different from you, different ethnic backgrounds. And um, like if you're a newcomer, you're more you're most of your friends are primarily going to be co-ethnic initially right like that's just kind of a natural process there are some variation there's lots of, i mean we could talk about all that stuff too if you're interested but in general there's a tendency that you tend to find your co-ethnic community and so in that sense like for uh first generation immigrants like making that moving outside of your joining the neighborhood house say for instance and moving outside of your um uh, your co-ethnic group is that's easy to see actually right because that's the, those new connections really make a big difference uh, in that experience it is a little different for like um, I find I'm finding anyway that it's a little different for second generation immigrants so second generation immigrants like I, I've actually just read the paper recently that um, it looks like their friendships are becoming more co-ethnic especially as they get older so like over time their friendships are becoming more co-ethnic and um, that's kind of a big puzzle I think to, to try and understand still like I think we have I have some sort of ideas about why that might be happening, but but um, to actually figure out why it's happening is like something I think we, you know, not just me, like a lot, you know, all of us sociologists have to pay attention to. Uh, this might be a bit of a simplistic question, but okay. what's the actual value of having diversity in friendship groups? If someone oh, yeah, wants to be like friends with people from yeah, their yeah. own culture, that's what's yeah, the yeah. issue with that? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, to be honest, there's, nothing wrong with that right like so yeah. as far as like yeah you know who your friends are that's up to you really right and um there's so many good things about having co-ethnic friends to be honest like i think uh well i wonder we could like talk about it a little bit just in our personal lives but there's lots of value in that really right like you can just like um whether especially like say if thinking about the immigrant experience like you could just find people who like share your values right or share some similar tastes in food and uh pop culture and all you know all those kinds of things like there's so many nice things about that like when you're trying to sort of feel comfortable in a new place to kind of find that experience and and um hey but then there's also sort of just instrumental value right like of support and things you can get from your co-op community so there's so many good reasons to to be connected with your co-ethnic community really but um hey when we think about like diverse friendships like there's a couple of reasons to think about it there is an argument for it to be the sort of instrumental value of those diverse friendships right and this is kind of a famous sociology argument about like how um within uh within groups of people who have that are similar to themselves to each other um the kind of resources and things information and other kinds of things that might be instrumentally valuable 
everybody kind of has them a little bit, right? And so those kind of groups can be really good for sort of like personal support and those kinds of things. But actually when you make connections outside of that group, you bring in new kinds of resources, particularly things like new information and that kind of stuff that you kind of learn different things from different groups. And when you meet these, make these connections outside of your sort of similar, uh, your similar co-ethnic group, you kind of get access to those different kinds of different ideas and different kinds of resources, different opportunities and that kind of stuff. And so there's a, there's a kind of argument for it being instrumentally value, but I think too, there's is like an argument for it, like as an end in itself, right? Like there is something, I mean, I personally think it's just like, if there's something valuable about making those connections across boundaries, right? Like by understanding someone who's different from you. And and um, yeah, and so, and I think that's kind of valuable. I mean, it's valuable for me, right? But it's also, I think that it could be really valuable for like a newcomer, right? Like, as you're trying to figure out your way in Canada to try and meet some people from different backgrounds who like had different immigration experiences than you did, for instance, or uh, someone who's from Canada who grew up here and can kind of tell you differences about their um, childhood and growing up here and things like there's so many kind of values that are kind of a, just an end in itself in that and there is some evidence for that like in the research too right that people feel like a sense of belonging when they make those kinds of connections and um, that, that there's sort of like a you know some people in particular even like attracted to those kind of connections like they search them out for the kind of those that kind of value that they see in them really so it could be better for you know social cohesion generally as well on a societal level i feel like when yeah people... yeah so yeah, that's a great question. That's a great point, really, because like you're like they're like within your co-ethnic group, right? You're, that that possibility for social cohesion is kind of easy. But like in a like if you're living in a really diverse neighborhood, say for instance, like if you if we're all kind of in our little groups, there's not going to be this broader sense of social cohesion. But but a neighbor like say put a neighborhood house in a in a in a area, or you know, I mean, I'm partial because I've been doing my project about neighborhood houses. But there's other other organizations can have a similar outcome, and other kinds of social infrastructure can have a similar outcome of kind of bringing different kinds of people together and and kind of building that cohesion across those those different those uh, lines of difference kind of that might exist in a neighborhood or in a place and hey you could it's hard to draw that up all the way to society but it you know in theory you could kind of think like okay society it can happen at that level too yeah totally um one last question i had about neighborhood houses is yeah, sure. what can they do better for immigrants uh yeah so i think there's like some that's a good question really like they're like so I think like when we think about it, like when we study, like we have some things about neighborhood houses that we kind of give them advice about things they could do different. Like, I think they could do a better job of like for immigrants, like, love. well, let's, hey, I'm kind of stumbling a little bit. You kind of like, I didn't prepare, but <laughs> um, hey, one of our criticisms of neighborhood houses, I should say, let's just say it straight out kind of thing. Like one thing we kind of like think about like when we, what we could do different, what neighborhood houses could do different is actually providing sort of like leadership possibilities within that, that organization that represent the community in a way, right? And so sometimes these communities, and this is actually a criticism that's happened about settlement houses over their whole history really, right? Is like, is it possible that these are sort of like, if you don't mind me being blunt, just kind of like sort of like white organizations, white kind of people who care, right? And have really good intentions, but sometimes there's a there's a, dis, uh, a gap between sort of like the people running the organizations and the people they're serving. And, and could they do a better job of actually sort of like reflecting the people they're serving in their organizations? I think there's an argument to be made about that. And uh, we've kind of suggested that's possible. And, you know, you see that sometimes at like, um, neighborhood houses at the front line, like, so the people who are actually on the ground interacting with people, oftentimes they really do sort of reflect the community and, and sort of experience and skills, language skills, all those kind of things. But as you move up in the organizations, they tend to be 
they, you get away from that a little bit. And I think that's something that neighborhood houses could do better. Yeah, so uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, all the volunteers tend to be very cohesive within the community. But once you get to like the upper part of like the hierarchy, that's yeah, where it gets I, a bit more monogamous. Yeah, monotonous. Homogeneous a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bit, I mean, just, you know, yeah, just a little bit more sort of Canadian kind of. Yeah, and like, um, gotcha. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and the, I should say, like, it's not just the volunteers. There is like, I mean, neighborhood houses are amazing for volunteering and also providing opportunities for uh, newcomer immigrants to get these kind of volunteer experiences. And that frontline staff, too. So these are people who are actually working for the neighborhood house. So not volunteers, but the guy, people who are on the ground kind of, they're often pretty reflective of the community. But it is just as you start to move up that that hierarchy that it it's... Uh, something they could maybe do a little bit better, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks for sharing that. We'll be right back here on Research Review after one short message. metal for over 30 years on CITR. Tune in every Saturday from 1 to 3. You are listening to Research Review on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Aliron, and along with my co-host German, today we are interviewing Dr. Sean Lauer, an associate professor in UBC's Department of Sociology. So in the past bit, we've talked about one of um, Dr. Lauer's books uh, on the topic of neighborhood houses, community building in Vancouver. So um, moving ahead, there's uh, something else that we'd like to touch on now. Yeah, that's great. Uh, now I'll pass it on to Alirod. He has a lot of questions about yeah. Oh, yeah. other books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your other books, because um, it's pretty interesting because... Initially, we had a bit of miscommunication between German and I. So, oh yeah, okay. I understand you've written two books recently, right? Yeah. That you've been co-author <laughs> of. So, one of them was Neighborhood Houses, and the other one is called Getting Married. That's right. Uh, getting Married: uh, The Public Nature of Our Private Relationships. So, uh, <laughs> German thought the interview was going to be about the Neighborhood Houses book. I thought it was going to be about <laughs> getting married. So, we kind of uh, yeah. um, and then we had like a meeting a couple of days before to prep for this. Yeah, like, hey, off on why not both? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, fairly similar topics. And like one thing that right now we were talking about, like neighborhood houses, the whole about mm -hmm. like demographics and. Uh, group cohesion people seeking out um, mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. who are similar to them uh, one thing that was touched upon in the book getting married is the issue of you know who it is that people are marrying these days and oh, yeah. overwhelmingly it's that people are marrying people with the same uh, characteristics when you consider characteristics of education race yeah. religion occupation so on and there was a quote yeah, in the book yeah. i found it pretty interesting it said that the investment banker will marry another investment banker not their high school sweetheart, the lawyer will marry the lawyer, so on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I wonder, like in the era of rising socioeconomic socioeconomic inequality, what uh-huh. impact will this have going forward by marrying the quote you know right person? Because when mm. you see a wealthy individual, you can you can basically double your household income. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah, so that's definitely so that process definitely contributes to um, to inequality without a doubt, right? So like when you bring two excuse me, highly educated people together, maybe even from families that already were wealthy, but, it, but regardless, if you bring these two highly educated people together, like you're kind of creating this sort of super family in a way when it comes to uh, income and, and potential for their children and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so it will contribute to, it does contribute to like a gap in inequality for sure. And, um, and yeah, so yeah, without a doubt that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would imagine it's only natural, though. Like, um, I would assume the two main places you meet the person you marry are school and work. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the investment ma- banker is most likely going to meet another investment banker just out of circumstance. Yeah, yeah. And but- even just, like, understanding of what the person does. Like, I know in medicine, for example, um, being a doctor is a huge commitment and a lot of times the only people that understand that are other doctors. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, my partner is also an, <clears throat> excuse me, also an academic. So we kind of are, we are, we're a perfect example of this actually. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, that's all really true. And in general, this is something like, um, this carries over from my interest in friendship and, and it's, it overlaps with the interest in marriage, but there is this, just this tendency, we call it homophily. Uh, it's this just tendency for us to, are, to be attracted to the people who are like ourselves. So we're attracted to people who are similar to us in some kind of way. And um, a lot of times that has to do with these sort of like psychological traits as well too, right? Of like how we're, how, what that we're attracted to. Uh, so there are these kind of, there's this process of attraction, but then when a loss, also the com- what comes with homophily is um, this, uh, we call it like a structural, el- there's a structural element of it, right? And so, so my partner, for instance, we met each other so we can understand each other because we're both academics, but we met each other because we were in school together and we were spending so much time together. And so people who are similar tend to be put into situations where they're they're together, right? Like you end up being like through work and through other kinds of things, you end up spending time and being interacting with people who like are like you on some kind of measures, right? And and so that that also contributes to this um, thing we call like a structural availability. So um actually if you don't mind me being personal for a minute my my partner she's really great she always makes a joke about it and she says that um when we went into grad school there was a cohort of us um there are only two guys in the cohort and one of them was gay so she was like basically (laughs) my only option was sean so (laughs) it's a good good situation for you to be in (laughs) (laughs) and one thing on the topic of meeting people because um this was touched upon in your book as well it's and you know general observation as well nowadays uh young people so i'm saying like people in their 20s they have a lot more opportunities to meet uh other potential partners there's a greater pool of people to choose from and this can be due to factors such as the ease of travel greater independence from parents or family and uh growth of the internet you know this is something compared to not just hundreds of years ago but even a few decades ago these factors have become amplified so why would you think that despite this in the past few decades um divorces become prevalent if people have more choice more ability to really choose who they're going with compared to the past where there was more of like 
quite literally like arranged marriages going on <laughs> what's going yeah. on in society yeah yeah i think um well i mean so divorce divorce is still prevalent but mm -hmm. it's actually kind of interesting divorce is is actually not like there was a period where divorce was just increasing and increasing mm -hmm. but it's actually kind of leveled off and even gone down a little bit mm -hmm. so so divorce is still part of life like people get married and they decide it's it didn't work out for whatever reason but but it's not like it but divorce isn't like uh i mean hey through like the 70s 80s and that period like divorce was really increasing mm -hmm. at really rapid rates and and we really have kind of evened out a little bit and even along with that like we kind of divorce better now too so we're actually doing a better job of divorcing so we kind of there's not as much like acrimony in, in divorces it's not to say that it doesn't happen of course it does but um but there we're also divorcing a little bit better these days too maybe part of that has to do with the kind of matchmaking kind of processes that are going on and um you know we were talking a little bit about the homophily processes before and um but um the online dating even kind of lends itself that to that a little bit too right because you as you're swiping left and right you know like you're kind of looking for someone like you it even becomes a little bit more specific like what's their job what did they do where do they live what's it? you're looking at them how do they look and like all these things kind of contribute to this kind of homophily kind of um uh, the the psychological attraction kind of aspect of homophily a little bit more even too right so it's it's actually kind of promoting it a bit more and so yeah so maybe some of those things I mean you know I, I'm actually a person who thinks like um, like finding people who are different than you is actually a good thing really right but 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 there is like you know when you find people there's some stability to finding someone like you right mm -hmm. like also too right we can't deny that and that that happens and and so there's some stability to that so maybe that's kind of leading towards like marriages being a little bit um a little bit more stable potentially mm -hmm. but then also maybe it maybe it lends itself to people being able to divorce a little bit better and and we're getting a little bit better at it after some experience too right after all these decades but that's true yeah and it's probably just helps them be more comfortable too like i, I met my girlfriend online and the yeah. first two things she looked at was like oh we go to the same school and he has a job i understand yeah um, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden i'm on a good level uh whereas like someone who's totally the opposite is just like what do we talk about yeah and it's yeah. just like this comfortable and just being with someone like yourself yeah, yeah i would imagine like it's useful to date an opposite like we always get to hear the phrase opposites attract mm -hmm. and i would imagine it's particularly important for someone who's introverted be with someone who's extroverted and maybe someone who's more neurotic be with someone yeah, more resilient yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is all really good thoughts. Hey, I feel like I want to make sure I mention my um, colleague. Um, her name is uh, UH Chan. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, me. Uh, sorry about that. And um, she does research about online dating in particular and these kind of things. So you guys might, uh, hey, if you're looking for a future guest, you might want to ask her on because I feel Definitely. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, for for uh, university students too, if that's your oh, audience. Yeah be really interested in these kinds of things and I bet she'd be really great she probably has good good uh a lot of uh content for you <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting topic especially these days like with um how things are like changing like one thing um that was touched upon in your book well is yeah. that the median age for people's first marriage has also been increasing right now it's yeah. 29 for men yeah, um, yeah 27 for women it's much later in life compared to the past yeah yeah, yeah um, that's true it, can be due to a number of different factors uh, what impact do you think this is having overall um i mean there are like things that are important that are coming from it like so when people marry later like you there's a tendency for people to get a little bit more like settled in their life like so 
sometimes people even think of like marriage as something you do after you get like your, you've got your, you know, you have your job, you got a car, maybe even you have a house or something, you know, like you kind of have everything worked out ahead of time and then you get married. And so um, that's kind of one of the things that's kind of pushing the marriage a little bit later, but then also it's maybe, maybe contributes as one like aspect of making marriage a little bit different because those kind of things are, a lot of times those things are sort of sorted out or it's not uncommon for those things to be sorted out now. Whereas like, um, you know, previously people would be like get married and then start sorting mm -hmm. all those kind of things out and they would work themselves out over time and so so that's one thing that's kind of really different people are having children later too then right so people are waiting to have children because they're getting married later and then uh i mean one place you can see that anyways in just the romantic comedies right because there's all these people that are sort of up against the wire of like you know getting married having children because the, they're trying to fit it into the smaller window kind of right so that kind of stuff that, but that stuff that's real kind of right and that that's actually something that kind of happens with these later marriages um hey one thing i want to feel like maybe i should mention just because it's something we i talk about in my in my research and we talk about in the book too but it's just that even though marriage there are some things changing like people are getting married later but the marriages themselves are actually remarkably similar to what they used to be like hmm. so people still even though they're like there's things that are changing about like when people get married and who can get married now hmm. right but the marriages themselves still turn out to be somewhat similar and they're not that dramatically they're not dramatically different than what they used to be like so a lot of the kind of sort of things that we think about like married life are similar in a way and gender roles within marriages are similar in a lot of ways and so and that that kind of thing is that that's interesting to me also too like how like that's one thing from sociology like institutions are sort of like stable right and they don't change easily and so so like people are waiting to get married but when they get there they end up kind of doing it in similar kind of ways and living their life somewhat similarly as people did even you know 20 30 years ago that's that's interesting because you know again as you just mentioned from a sociological perspective many of these so-called like what we call the rules of marriage yeah yeah and these are the ones that are societally imposed as opposed to the legal norms yeah, of marriage yeah, yeah. for example you know back yeah, when yeah. same-sex marriage was illegal exactly. but these uh these social societal norms and expectations as you mentioned, they've stayed a lot of a lot the same. The dynamic that there is between married couple. One thing that was mentioned in the book is, for example, mm -hmm. this expectation that people, you know, like they sleep in the same bed, even though it's exactly. like yeah. it's, it's it's arbitrary when you think about it in a way, and perhaps <laughs> a lot of times not even that practical. <laughs> I mean, but, you like in the book we talk about that, but like about sleep, right? Like some sleep people actually sometimes suffer really a lot because they're of losing sleep and not being able to sleep but it's but you know it's but they're still committed to this like oh no we have to mm -hmm. stay sleep in the same bed because that's like what it means to be married and and uh yeah and or uh, i'm not sure if that ever might have happened to you guys but um uh some like i remember the first time i met someone who actually there it was a husband and wife but they had separate bedrooms and it was one of those things where i was you know, i it, i was younger you know and i was like doing a double take i was like wait 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 i'm I, <laughs> I'm missing something here. Like what's going on? I had to like go over it in my head multiple times to just kind of make sense of it. Like it didn't make sense, you know? <laughs> Great. We'll be right back here on CITR 101.9 FM with Research of You After One Short Message. Slice of Life Art and Gift Shop is Vancouver's choicest destination for one-of-a-kind artist-made prints, posters, screen prints, riso prints, paintings, acrylic paintings, watercolor paintings, ceramic mugs, ceramic plates, ceramic bowls, ceramic pots, lapel pins, hats, toques, crochet bathing suits, jewelry, trinkets, knickknacks, 
hand-painted signs, curated thrift, and a bunch more stuff that won't fit in this designated block of airtime. Slice of Life Art and Gift Shop, located at 1636 Venables, just off commercial. Open 11 to 6, six days a week. You are listening to Research Review on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Alirod, and along with my co-host Germán, today we've been interviewing Dr. Sean Lauer. And in the past bit, we've uh, talked about one of his books, which is called Getting Married, The Public Nature of Our Private Relationships. I noticed in your book, it talks a lot about, so for example, the like the age at which people are getting married has changed. Who can get married, you know, has changed recently. Mm-hmm. Um, just the whole uh, dating process has changed recently. But overall, once people get married, it's still very much the same uh, sort of like monogamous relationships, yeah. similar expectations. Um, yeah, yeah. For example, like leading up to having children as well. And yeah, yeah. D- do you think like in the future, these, these societal norms, these like unwritten rules could change? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, so, so I'll say like, yes, I do think they can change. Right. Cause that's the thing about it is that um, I mean, even laws change, right. Like we've seen that. So laws change too. Right. So the laws are a little bit are more formal, like more formal rules really. Right. And they're harder to change because they're institutionalized in the, in, um, in our governments and, uh, and such, but, um, but even those, but those informal roles are even less, less uh, formal. Right. And they, so they can change really. Right. Like, and uh, so it is possible, but, but the thing about institutions is that they don't lend themselves to that change. Right. And so along, like when we think about like, so say for instance, like dating, things like that, it's a little less institutionalized. Right. And so the sort of the informal rules of dating change a little bit more fluidly and they can kind of be a little different and such, but, but once you get married, like all of a sudden you feel all those kind of informal, expectations pretty quickly and and they come with that institution and, and so all those kind of informal things are wrapped up in that institution even what like defines it really and so it's so it it's not that they can change but it's not easy to change mm-hmm. them basically right so and even in marriage like our our overall argument is that the institution doesn't change easy and so we're kind of really emphasizing that to kind of make to kind of get that point across but i mean we recognize things have changed even within the institution within the boundaries of the institution say like sort of gender roles have changed a little bit kind of right and about wi- around women working and all the outside the household and all those kind of things like those things have changed but there's still so much about it that that don't change and are hard to change kind of right and one last thing i wanted to touch on um you know building off of the norm of marriage because one expectation is that people generally like in marriage having children but one thing that's happening across most of um developed industrialized countries these days is that birth rates are uh really falling down every year it's getting lower and lower and yeah. uh, it's falling fast below replacement levels. Yeah, many yeah, couples yeah. are just having one child. They're having no children at all. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. For example, me personally, I don't have any siblings. I'm just one child as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but when you think about this in the future, this could have, um, at least in the near future, as, you know, society adjusts to this new equilibrium, it could have some negative consequences Whereas yeah, yeah. the population is going to be in a period of decline and there's going to be this sort of like age imbalance that we're seeing in a lot of countries where yeah, population yeah, yeah. skews older. So there's not enough young people. There's a lot of yeah, young people. Yeah. Uh, how do you think this factors overall, both into like the institution of marriage and like society yeah, overall? Yeah. yeah. Well, Hey, I'll say two things. One, um, 
So you're totally right about obviously that um, uh, the rates of having children are declining, but but um, people still tend to have children, like you said, but they but they'll stop at one. That's like mm -hmm. a thing. So um, it's it's the rates of having children are lower than marriage, but it's still they're really high. Most people have one child, mm -hmm. right? And uh, but like you said, it is in that re replacement level. So so on one hand, uh, I'm going to try and bring it all together a little bit, but um, on one hand, um, yeah, that's kind of like that fits it stays in line with our idea about like marriage. Like marriage is like an institution that governs the uh, having children primarily, right? And and most marriages include children, right? Like that's just something that's really common. And um, and still, you know, I think it's, I forget, I don't remember the rate right off the top of my head, but it's around 90% or something. It's one of those things that just about everybody does, every married couple does. Um, but hey, but you're right about the replacement level thing, and that's how I'm going to bring it all around a little bit, because, you know, basically, this is something that's been happening. They call it, um, demographers call it the second demographic transition of this kind of decline in childhood uh, and the rate of child, uh, childbearing. And, um, and you know, basically, the like, say, for Canada, right, like, what's our what's our take on this is like, we need to bring in, we need to bring in more immigrants, mm -hmm. right? Like, so we're like, okay, we really want people to come to Canada, right? Cause we have this demographic transition problem and we have this age structure problem and how can we deal with this problem? And the, 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 basically the solution is we need people to come to Canada basically. Right. And, and uh, so, Hey, maybe that kind of brings it all, all the way back around to the beginning of our conversation because um, yeah. And, and that means that we need to, there needs to be more people coming to Canada. There are going to be more kind of different people from different backgrounds in different parts of the world and then we have to think about like okay well what does it mean for those people their experience to come to Canada and fit in in Canada and find their place and find their way in Canada and uh, hey they can help us with our demographic transition but they also can we have some kind of responsibility then too right of thinking about like what is that experience what is the immigrant experience in, in Canada as well definitely yeah as we wrap up on this podcast <laughs> I feel like some of the major themes I've come across is like we have more freedom of choice but there seems to be like less no real change in what the actual outcome is <laughs> yeah it's real interesting because if you had like asked me before i would imagine like there would be a huge amount of change like I, I know like one organization in the 50s in the u.s like asked what are your attitudes towards mixed race marriage and only like four oh, yeah. percent of people approved and mm -hmm. they did it every year up until 1980s or something where they yeah. didn't even bother asking the question anymore because it's just <laughs> a ludicrous question to ask. <laughs> so like we have progressed quite a bit, but at the yeah, same yeah. time, it's interesting to see places where we haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, you know, it's like, so like who's allowed to be married i think is you know because not only was it like how do people just sort of informally approve there were laws against it too right in mm -hmm. places right so like about inner uh interethnic or interracial marriage and stuff right so yeah so the and so we really like who's allowed to get married like we're really kind of both formally and informally rules are like opened up really there and i think the story about same-sex marriage is really dramatic too right it like um uh, yeah, just it's just happened really quick, kind of right, like quick. You know, I don't want to exaggerate like the years that it was illegal, but it, it's happened like once it started, got some momentum. It really changed pretty quickly, and and um, and so that's it is remarkable, really, right? And like from our point of view of marriage, we always think of that as like that's that's like the institution bringing in more. These were these relationships that were outside of marriage, and they're bringing them in. Like, okay, now you're part of our institution, like, and you. But you know now you have to follow our rules, kind of too, right? <laughs> like and uh, but so yeah, that stuff happening and it really is kind of remarkable uh, to see that happening. And there is like changes in in those kinds of things. And um, 
Uh, hey, maybe if you got, tell, tell me if I'm kind of, uh, if it's staying in line with your thinking, but I went, maybe I'm going to mention that I'm working with a graduate student who's um, doing a project about friendship in marriage. And so he's really interested in, in uh, inter-ethnic and interracial marriage. And what does that do for your friendship, um, uh, your friendship group composition, basically, right? So kind of coming back and thinking about my interesting cross-ethnic uh, friendships. Um, yeah, and he's kind of trying to see like, oh, there's a there's a famous idea, like when you get married, uh, that's in the book too, you might've come across that, uh, Alarad, but um, that um, your friendship network tends to constrain a little, get smaller mm -hmm. a little bit. You kind of like lose, you lose some friends and and you kind of limit your friends and it, and they sometimes describe marriage as like a greedy institution that way. And, um, but then it becomes kind of interesting when you think about that process happening when you have an inter-ethnic or interracial kind of marriage then too, right? Because then you kind of ask yourself like, okay, well, we're going to lose friends, but whose friends do we lose and whose do we not lose? And, and what do our, and then we're, maybe we'll make some new friends, but what kind of new friends do we make? And, and it becomes kind of interesting to kind of check that out. And um, actually this guy, his name is Brett and Brett's finding that, um, that um, in his, uh, in the research, it looks like when you get involved in an interethnic relationship and, or an interracial relationship, one of the common themes is that your overall, on average, friendships get more diverse. So you then tend to have less, fewer co-ethnic friendships and more diverse friendships from that kind of inter-ethnic relationship. And, but then when he looks into it more closely, he can see actually that it depends a little bit on who you are in the relationship and it tends that, so this is in Canada. And so he can, he can see that um, visible minority um, partners are more likely to lose their co-ethnic friends than the non-visible minority mm -hmm. partners. So when these two people get together, the one of them loses their co-ethnic friends, the other one kind of maintains their co-ethnic friendship. And it's sort of, there's a little bit of an imbalance about how that sort of friendship group change happens for those, those individuals. So, um, hey, I'm trying to weave in these two. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's an interesting yeah. topic. Like one, yeah. <laughs> and one, one last thing I had a question because you know, your yeah, book sure. also taught touched upon one of the factors in marriage's race and as we mentioned before so a lot of the legal restrictions and even the um, societal stigma around that has uh, yeah. died down in the past few decades but again yeah. for example your book uh, mentioned that in the united states 90 percent of uh, white americans would marry someone of the same race yeah, um, yeah. and uh, i'm just wondering like what the statistics will be for canada but how does how do you see this changing in the future? Do you think it's going to stay similar or might people's like norms change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoot, I wish, um, I don't remember the statistics offhand actually, so I, I wish I had it in front of me right now. But um, but in Canada, it is much more common to have an inter-ethnic or interracial mm -hmm. relationship than it is in the US. So it's a total, Canada's different, right? And in that sense, multiculturalism, hey, it's not like a perfect idea and, and implementation. All these, there's a lot to say about actually it as a, as a concept and, and as a policy, but, um, but that kind of ethos does seem to matter actually in Canada and it makes a difference really right and and uh hey uh, a lot of times these kind of interethnic relationships they find there's similar other kinds of similarities right like um like people still find things like uh you know like your mom was mentioning earlier like uh, where you went to school and what mm -hmm. uh, what's your occupation and all those kinds of things those things still bring people together uh those similarities still bring people together even though it's crossing uh ethnic boundaries kind of but uh but they are way more common they're much more common in canada though yeah yeah, I can testify to everything you said. Like, uh, my girlfriend's white, and I grew oh, yeah. up like with a bunch of brown friends. And yeah. now, let's just say I own a lot of flannel. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, yeah, I can definitely personally relate to a lot of what you said in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure having you on today. I definitely heard, learned a whole lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was great to talk to you guys, too. Yeah, I haven't thought, like, uh, the, the putting, so you were saying you didn't have the idea of putting them together, but putting them together like this really was even... It makes me, a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can see the links of my own. I mean, you know, I, and when we think of our research agendas as academics, we always try and think of these links, and I know they're there, but this is, mm-hmm. I, to be honest, this might be the first time I so literally talk about both of them at the same time that uh, that I could start seeing links <laughs> and connections that even I hadn't realized. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's kind of like what we're... Uh... I'm going for anchor together like just because I think that's that's the most interesting thing when we're work, looking at research is really um making those connections both between different right. disciplines uh right. making those connections with like what's really going on in society what's going on in our lives that just makes right. it so much better to um understand it right right yeah that's great yeah yeah when you first contacted me about this too I thought it seemed like a great idea as a as a project a podcast or whatever yeah so it seems really i think it's great so yeah thanks for inviting me this concludes research review on citr 101.9 fm my name was alirod along with my co-host german today we interviewed dr sean lauer an associate professor in ubc's department of sociology and co-author of two books which we touched on today the first which was neighborhood houses community building in vancouver and the second one, which was Getting Married, The Public Nature of Our Private Relationships. We hope you tune in again to Research Review right here on CITR 101.9 FM in two weeks from now on Wednesday at 6 p.m. I'm Walter Cronkite. I'd like you to hear something. They're radio ham, amateur, giving of their own time and spending their own money. CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver, your volunteer-run station. They're just two average guys who saw the need and volunteered.